Welcome to OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Chief Clinical Officer at Wheeler OMP and Chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. Today, I couldn't be more excited to welcome Mac McClellan. Mac is a certified and licensed prosthetist orthotist, a fellow of the International Society for Prosthetics and Orthotics, a fellow of the Academy with Distinction, and president and owner of Prosthetic Orthotic Associates in Tyler, Texas. Mac is a past president of the Academy, chair of the Academy's Public Policy Committee, the Academy's representative to the OMP Alliance, and member of the Academy's Gate, Lower Limb Prosthetics, and Upper Limb Prosthetics Societies. In 2019, Mac received the Academy's Champion of the Profession and Titus Ferguson Lifetime Achievement Awards. Mac, it is great to see you. And I, I think I need to renegotiate my deal on a per word basis here. That is quite the resume. Yeah, there you go. It's very rare that we get to talk to somebody who has so much experience in the field. So I know you are not one to talk about yourself, but I'm really excited to have your wisdom today. And maybe one of the first things that you can help all of us understand is what exactly is the Public Policy Committee and and why is it so important to us as a profession? The, The Public Policy Committee of the Academy was started in 2016 and or at least that's when the proposal was uh, given to the board. And the purpose of that was to give a focus on public policy issues for the academy. And that really was based upon my role with the O&P Alliance, because the Alliance discusses federal level issues, is very involved with CMS and Congress, et cetera. And we didn't have a lot of experience, or at least we weren't coalesced around those kind of subjects in the academy necessarily. So the idea was that let's start a public policy committee so that we'll have a bit more information, a group that can interact more effectively with the alliance and equally important to interact with the academy board so that issues can be brought to the board and the board could bring issues to the public policy committee. Have you always had such a a knack and an interest in this public policy and government relations type stuff? Or was that born out of something out of necessity as your career in the field unfolded? It was out of necessity. I am not a political lover, but the more years I've been involved in the profession, the more I've realized that you have to have a voice in policy to give policy a direction. Obviously, a lot of the regulations and statutes and things like that are uh, done through Congress or through CMS have a direct impact on our profession and therefore upon our patients. And it became clear to me that we need to have more involvement from our profession so that we will be able to direct some of those policies both for the benefit of the profession and our patients. Yeah, and I think that the Alliance in general really was multiple organizations trying to come together to help affect that change. So maybe if we look at the OMP Alliance, what are the organizations involved? And then what role does the Alliance play within this whole process here? I'll give you a little background. The OMP Alliance uh, actually was started in 2007. It was suggested by Mike Hammontree, a CPO, who I believe at that time was the AOPA president. And from conversations that I've had, I think the the 
impetus for starting the alliance was born out of a congressman calling Mike and complaining about having received conflicting messages from AOPA and the Academy. He said, dude, what's going on in your profession here? Why do I get you know, this input from this group and totally different input from the other? So Mike began to ponder on that and said, maybe we ought to try to coalesce here a little bit. So in 2007, there were discussions begun between the four organizations, which were the Academy, AOPA, ABC, and NAAOP. And the idea was to develop a working group that would speak with one voice that would have a message of continuity to the outside world, especially to Congress. And in 2008, it became a formal organization and they had their first meeting at that time and it has been going ever since. And the Alliance works by having at that time, it was a conference call every two weeks, and now it's a Zoom call. So every two weeks, members of those organizations, representative members, are on a call to discuss issues. I might also add that I've mentioned the four groups to start, but in 2011, the BOC indicated an interest in joining the alliance, and after some negotiations and discussions, they were brought into the alliance as well. So currently there are five organizations that comprise the ONP alliance. Now, I want to go to the coding section of this for just a moment. I think as the average person or the average professional in our field sees that being one of the most forward-facing aspects of it. And we've seen a handful of these new codes that, are, that have been established over the last couple of years, but we typically hear about how rare that is. There's been some older products, the push button femoral rotators that received coding changes, and then also new products like the C-Brace that were established just as a couple examples. What's the process of going through that petition or recognition that a new code is needed with CMS? It may seem like it happens all of a sudden, but I think there's a lot of inner workings in the background in a very long process, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct, Seth. And this isn't really exciting material, but it really is extremely relevant to our profession. We as practitioners, our day-to-day jobs to care for patients, so we don't think a whole lot about, gee, I wonder how that code got established. But there actually is a progression. It's a tiered progression. And it starts with CMS first making a decision on a new item or service, whether or not it's even globally eligible for Medicare coverage. So that's step one. If it is decided that particular item or service is indeed something that can be covered by Medicare, and I'm going to speak specifically now about DEMIPOS. DEMIPOS stands for Durable Medic Equipment, Prosthetic, Orthotics, and Supplies. And that is what we are under for the terms of what we're talking about now. That's how I'm going to describe what the benefit category determination and coding works. Once a determination has been made that it is indeed a service or item that Medicare will cover, it goes to the benefit category determination, and that determination decides, hey, this is a DME product or this belongs under the ONP benefit. So in 2020, changes were made to the benefit category determination, which referred to as the BCD process. And the changes were made to make it more transparent, 
and to help the system's efficiency. The group that decides whether or not this is going to be DMA or if it's going to be ONP is a coding work group, and it's called the HICPIX coding work group, and HICPIX standing for Healthcare Common Procedure Coding System. This group not only decides about which category a new service or item will go into, but also what code will be assigned to it. Once the benefit category determination has been made, now a code has to be assigned and there has to be some time allotted for that. This coding group meets only a couple times a year, usually in January and July, and therefore very few applications for new codes are considered, which causes a backup and delay in getting new technologies to the market. So the process is somewhat slow in allowing new technology to get into the profession. And that has a kind of a, a double-edged sword thing. First of all, it doesn't allow new technology to quickly get into the hands of practitioners so that we can use it for our patients. But also, this has a downstream effect because if CMS doesn't cover a device or it takes a long time to get it uh, approved, many instances, insurance companies will follow that lead. So if Medicare doesn't approve it, insurances oftentimes don't approve it. So that's one of the reasons that it's pretty important that manufacturers who put products into the system, that they get them through the system and into the hands of practitioners so they can be used for the patient population. So that's how the, in, in a kind of a thumbnail sketch, that's how the system works. Sure. And, and I assume th these are all going to be applications that are coming from individuals or typically manufacturers, but they're not out there combing through emerging technology saying, oh, we should look at something like that, right? It's all got to come from the application process. If, is that right? That is absolutely correct. And actually, there is one more piece to that, and that is once a determination has been made and once a code has been assigned, then the reimbursement level has to be assigned as well. And that, again, is a separate process, and that takes time as well. So this is the reason that some of these technologies take a long time to get through the process so they can be utilized. Yeah, and we've seen that somewhat recently. It's like the double-edged sword of, oh, we got a code, this is great, and then it's, oh, now it's bite your nails for the next year or two while you see what your reimbursement's going to be that's going to either allow it to be successful or really handcuff it. That's absolutely true. It sometimes will take years for applications from the time they are submitted until the product or service is authorized and has a code and a reimbursement level. One of the most recent examples that comes to my mind, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we just saw this happen with the Osseo integration adapters that received codes, but also a, a reimbursement amount recently. And, and if I'm not mistaken, maybe even a successful appeal on that initial reimbursement amount. Yes, it's called the Axor 2, and it was developed and put into the system as an application for a code and for reimbursement. And as you say, both of those have now been assigned. And yes, there was some back and forth on that. I don't think it was a code situation where there was any kind of a conflict with that. I think the question was on the reimbursement. Yeah, I believe so. And I, and I could be wrong on this. We're, we're just going off the cuff here, but I believe there was an effort to get that initial reimbursement amount raised from established originally. 
And it, it actually was, you're correct. The original reimbursement suggestion from CMS was very low and they did move it up, but without talking about specific numbers, the one that is now official as the reimbursement level was actually one third approximately of what was requested by the developer. Yeah. I can't say I'm shocked. Are you? I'm stunned. <laughs> I lay awake night just being so shocked. Some of the other recent efforts, I think we saw the C-Leg coding get established. That's a good example. And another thing in that 2023 cycle, what were some of the significant changes that happened in 2023? Can you bring us up to speed on some of those? Yes. And I can back up a bit just on the C-Brace, just to give you a, a general history of how that worked, was it was initially introduced as a device. This were not talking about introduced as an application to CMS. But it was initially introduced in 2012. Uh, it was called the C-Brace. But the early starting prototypes, you go, wow, this isn't working as, as intended. It was pulled back. And then five years later in 2017, a redesigned model was brought out, which incorporated three sensors where the initial one just had one. Then in 2018, there was a request justification for an L code, and that was turned into Medicare. It took a year till 2019 until an L code was assigned. And then it took approximately another year until a reimbursement level was assigned to the C brace. So that just gives you a sense of what the progression was with just one particular product. But recently in a bill that is called the 2024 Home Health Prospective Payment System Proposed Rule, how's that for a short one? And you wonder what would P&O be doing underneath the Home Health Prospective Payment System Rule? The answer to that is lots of these things are lumped together when these proposed rules come out. They may cover a wide range of things that often do. And one of the things that I think really that was important that came of that, again, this was a proposed rule, was that exoskeletal devices, some of which had been listed under DME, were now brought to the prosthetic, actually the orthotic benefit. So these are now going to be under the purview of certified orthotists versus DME folks. And that's appropriate because some of the components on these exoskeletals are custom made. And some of these devices also incorporate myoelectric control, which again is something that we're as a profession are very used to working with and very skilled in setting up, et cetera. So recently speaking of specific devices, the rewalk now has a code and uh, a reimbursement level as do the MyoPro Motion E and MyoPro Motion W. So these are exoskeletal devices that are now under the orthotic benefit, which it is very good for both our profession and for the patients. Mac, how in the world do you keep all this stuff straight? How many assistants and staffers do you have? Yeah, let me think about that. <laughs> yeah, I've got a whole line of people that want to help me, but none of them have. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> I'm glad that you are absolutely the, the expert in this sense, because if it were up to me to keep any of this straight, we would all be in trouble. That's for sure. 
But you mentioned proposed changes that were involved in that C-brace discussion to some extent. But another proposed CD change that has just caught everybody's attention and came much quicker than I anticipated, knowing a little bit about the background of this effort, was the proposed LCD change regarding K2s and microprocessor devices. Can you just give us a little bit of info on what the recent shift has been here and where we go from there? Sure. This is a very important decision, and this comes in the form of a proposed LCD. In fact, it's called proposed LCD colon lower limb prostheses. And so on January 18th, CMS issued that LCD which actually is a modification of the existing lower limb prosthesis LCD. It's not a brand new one. This is actually an addition and expansion of it. And as you said, this authorizes or will authorize once it becomes a final rule, the use of microprocessor knees for K2 level amputees. And it's prior to this, that was not a benefit that was available to these folks. Interestingly enough, back when we had the 2016 problem with CMS coming out with a new LCD that shook our profession to its foundations, which took a year or so to finally get reversed, following that reversal, what was called the CMS Lower Limb Prosthetics Workgroup indicated that in 2017, I believe they said this, that they would look into the possibility of allowing K2 amputees to utilize the microprocessor technology. But that's seven years ago and nothing ever happened. But back in 2022, Dr. Cannonberg and the Autobot company submitted a request to CMS for exactly that request. And the rationale for that was to enhance ambulation capabilities and safety of the K2 amputee population and I believe this is correct. I believe the rationales were patients who had a history of falling, those who were at a high risk of falling, or those who had a fear of falling. And I know the initial request that was turned in 2022 was denied about 18 months after the initial request. A reapplication was turned in, and then in January, boom, there we are, came this revised LCD, which is great. Absolutely. And that's what I mean in terms of, I mentioned just knowing a little bit about the background and give a shout out to Dr. Kannenberg and his team. Incredible individual and a lot of hard work behind the scenes trying to advocate for this need for that K2 population. And that's why I'm so surprised. One of the things that we always faced in our profession is the lack of large number high-level studies. And that research shortfall for us is usually what governing bodies or insurance companies or decision makers kind of point to say, I, there's just not the data for us to make this change. And that's where I'm so excited and you know optimistic that this happened relatively quickly on that resubmission. It beats the alternative, that's for sure. Absolutely. And validated outcome measures were submitted with the original request. And as you point out, Seth, that has been a shortcoming of our profession. We're doers. We are patient care guys and gals that take care of the patients. That's our drive. That's why we got into the profession. That's what gives us joy, making a difference in people's lives. And 
documenting and keeping records, et cetera, is a part of it, but we really haven't had the kind of background research and articles, et cetera, to back up what it is we do. And that's been a tough road. We're certainly a lot better than we were years ago with that, but we're still not where we'd like to be, but we're making progress. And that's what allows us to have things like this modified LCD come to fruition because there is enough validation and outcome measures to make it viable. Absolutely. And I would maybe throw the invitation out there to everyone who's listening and, and especially those clinicians and people in our field to, like we said, this is still a proposed LCD change. And as Mac alluded to, there's been negative proposed LCD changes in the past that did not get put into effect. We're not to the finish line on this one. This one's certainly a favorable one in terms of what we believe is appropriate clinical care and coverage criteria, but there's still an opportunity for this to come up short. So for everyone who has the understanding that this is important for your patient populations, especially those K2 populations, I would say keep a close eye and become actively involved in this and, and learning how this has to get to the finish line of actually becoming adopted as opposed to something that falls short during the public comment period and the review period there. So from this point forward, there's public comments that have to be open for so long in consideration. And, and then what happens, Mac? They reconvene and make a final decision. Any other specifics about that that we need to kind of address? Seth, talking about the comment period, there is a public comment period. And on this particular LCD, it is 45 days, which will make the deadline date, I believe, March 2nd. And a couple things. First of all, I can tell you for sure that the organizations independently will be making comments on this, supporting this, and the organization I'm talking about, the Academy, AOPA, perhaps ABCBOC or NAAOP will do as well, but certainly the Alliance representing the coalescence of all these organizations will be sending in a comment letter in support of this. Another important point is Sometimes individuals wish to weigh in on these things, and that's fine, and that's good. That's what the public comment period is for, but we need as a profession to be all singing from the same songbook. So I believe there's, well, I know there has been some discussion at the Alliance level of maybe putting out some bullet points, which people can use to give them some guidance when making their individual comments if they desire the thing we referred to back how the Alliance got started. You don't want different messages. Somebody said, boy, this is great. Somebody else goes, no, nah, this has got a lot of holes in it. So I think it's very important that we get the right message and the profession sends the same or very similar message to CMS on the during the comment period. And if I may, just to say to the practitioners who will be using this, and by the way, I believe this will go through. I don't think there will be a glitch on this. I feel very good about it. This has been a long time coming. This isn't something the folks at CMS rolled out of bed one day and said, hey, let's throw microprocessors on K2 amputees. That didn't happen. We're seven years since the work group talked about it. So this has been well thought out and well hashed out. So I'm pretty confident that this will go through Perhaps there will be some minor changes to it. I'm not sure. But what I was going to say to the practitioners is it is really critical 
that you get a copy of this, not necessarily right now, but once it has gone through as a final rule, and read it and understand it. Because this is very specific. This is not, hey, good news, tattoos come in, throw a microprocessor on them. Obviously, A, that's not ethical. It doesn't make sense. Not every K2 needs that. It wouldn't be best for everyone. But there are some very specific parameters outlined in this LCD. And we as a profession need to be familiar with those, and we need to follow those. And as it has been in the past, we have had prior authorization associated with microprocessor control knees. That will not change. That will apply to this as well. So I just encourage once the final LCD comes out that the practitioners get very familiar with it and follow that to the letter. We want this to be successful. We don't want a bunch of applications going in for this that are rejected. And by the way, one other thing, Seth, you may be aware of, there is also in this proposal the option of if it is indicated using K3 level feet for K2 patients as well in conjunction with a microprocessor knee that would only be allowed if there is justification why you would need that particular K3 foot so that particular K3 knee would work for that specific K2 patient. For those of us who had more of a pessimistic look over the years at this policy side of things, what a bright light coming into the picture. Right? Just a great thing. I'm excited to see it. And especially as we look forward to Chicago and the annual meeting and scientific symposium, I'm anxious to hear some of the updates at that point, which maybe we'll have some since the public comment period just ended. Maybe it'll be a little early, but I'm sure there'll be some good opportunities to get caught up on the latest. And one of those is going to be the future political climates an OMP session that'll be going on Friday. And, and if I had to guess, I'm going to say you're involved in that. That's a wild guess, but you hit it. Good job. <laughs> yes, well, Kevin Hines and I will be presenting that. Good. Yeah, looking forward to it. A couple other quick things to highlight coming up in Chicago. The Academy's podcast mini-series honoring the last 50 years of Academy annual meetings. And then also one of my personal favorites for very selfish reasons, Trivia Night with the Academy's Scientific Societies. That'll be Friday again. We're bringing that back and uh, looking forward to seeing everyone out there. Mac, I would say that being involved with the policy side of the profession, I would imagine there's a few things you've changed your mind on over the years. Anything come to light that has changed your mind? I've considered maybe I should have been a bank president. I hear they make good money. But other than that, <laughs> nothing. No, I will tell you, Seth, I have no regrets having gone into this profession. It has been a blessing. There are very few professions that are better than ours. Man, we're taking people from wheelchairs and getting them up and walking. We're making people functional again. We are very fortunate to be in this profession and have the opportunities we do to make such tremendous differences in the lives of the people that are entrusted to our care. It's not an easy profession, but good things don't come easy. I have no regrets and if I've learned anything, I've probably forgotten it because I've been in so long. Well, the only thing left on your professional bingo card is a knighthood. So all I ask is when you get knighted, I want an invite to the ceremony. If, if that happens, I'll call you first. All right. I'll hold you to it. Thanks for joining us, Mac. It's been great to have you. Great. Thank you. My pleasure. 
And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. I hope you'll join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community, discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. And don't forget to check out the Academy's award-winning podcasts for OMP professionals. OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Garr and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.